Come on in, everybody. We're kind of switching things up just a little bit, and so I know lots of people come in late, and so they're going to miss part of all of this beginning here, but it's great to see you here this morning, still this morning, so welcome, everybody. Like I said, we're going to shift up services just a little bit um, uh, than we normally do, and there's some reasons for that. I'll explain that in just a little bit, but like Eric said, we had this um, Catalyst retreat this past weekend, and I know not all you can see down here, but there are all these little shards of broken chains, and because one of the things that we did is at the beginning of the retreat, we gave them a chain, and, um, and then at the end last night in, in worship, we had the chains broken then in two as a symbol of what God had done in our lives and breaking different junk off of our life, and, and so... Um, we were, I happened to hurry, we were here late last night getting, uh, finishing all that and everyone to start picking up all these things. I said, no, 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 leave it, leave it right here because, because I mean, these, it, this is, it represents, like Eric said, it, people's lives and what God has done and it, it just felt like worship to me. You know, these were left here and, um, and, uh, and, and so for those of you that weren't uh, a part of that, I want to encourage you at some point to go through Catalyst. It's just so good what God does in our lives when we just give him a little bit of time and how he takes us on this journey. But that's what all of this is for. And, and so if the building smells a little, mm, you know, there's 150 people here for 24 hours. And it looks a lot better and smells a lot better than it did last night, let me just say. Um, and so we did the best that we could to try to turn it around to do a service here uh, this morning. And so if you're wondering what that smell is, it's just because there were 150 people in this building here, and we used every inch of space in this building. Um, it was fantastic. For those of you who are part and made this thing happen, thank you for all your hard work. And we hosted One Chapel Austin and One Chapel Kyle here, and they were just bragging on all of you and how you host and the food and just taking care of people. I heard it over and over and over, just how they felt welcome. So thank you, all of you who make this possible. Good job, everybody. So this morning, we are shifting things up just a little bit in the service because we're finishing up the series that we started six weeks ago that we're calling On Purpose. And we've been going through just this whole idea of how do I discover my purpose? When you think of all the different questions, there are three major questions that people tend to have. One, is there life after death? Two, why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? And then the number one thing that people always want to know about is this issue of purpose. What is my purpose? And it kind of hits us at different seasons of our life. When we're younger, we hardly even think about it, but then all of a sudden college is coming up, and then bang, uh, what am I going to do with my life? And even if you make it through college without really having to seriously consider that, as soon as you graduate from college and you have all those bills, then all of a sudden, okay, now what am I supposed to do? And the reality of life hits, and... And then you can kind of get into the routine of things and working and paying off bills and doing all that type of stuff, but then that creeps back in, you know, it starts creeping back in when you start thinking about marriage, you start having kids, what, what am I supposed to be doing with my life, what is my life really about? And the reason why these things happen is because God has put a purpose inside of you, and as, as much as we may want to run from it, um, you, I want to encourage you not to run, but to ask the questions. Um, because God does have a purpose for your life. And so there's one more big issue that I want to talk about when we talk about purpose, and specifically about your personal purpose, and that is this issue of God's story and what he is doing. Because here's the thing, folks. Your story needs to fit into his story. 
You're not out there on an island by yourself. There is a story that's unfolding in your life, but it's part of a larger story. The problem, though, I think for so many of us is how we live our lives is so myopic. You know what I'm talking about? Where we focus just on this, this really narrow focus on what's happening right here, right now, in this situation, in my work situation, in my relationships, and this is going on, and our focus becomes so narrow that we lose track of the bigger picture that's happening around us. And so I have a video that I want you to watch here this morning. So if you would, draw your attention to the screen here and watch this little clip. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? Okay, how is going to admit that you missed seeing the moonwalking bear? Come on, no lying in church. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting of how we can become so myopic upon our point of view that we miss what's happening around us? And I think it's such a great illustration of how our lives can become where we become so narrow-focused just on our story, just what's happening in my life, that I miss out on how my story fits into God's big story. And so this morning, I want to try to draw your attention to the bigger story that's happening around you and to really look at God's big story. And when we start talking about God's big story, one of the questions that tends to captivate and has captivated every generation of Christians since the very first century is this question of when will Jesus return? That this has been a question that's come and really um, captured the imagination and the thoughts of so many people over the centuries. And, and the predictions of when Jesus would return really kind of escalated during the end of each millennium prior to AD 1000 and then again right before AD 2000. And so just in our lifetime, maybe you remember some of these things, there was a guy by the name of Edgar Wisenot who wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Any of you remember that book out there? I only had a couple people in the first service that remembered that book as well. Maybe you remember this, 1995, the Left Behind series debuted in 1995 and sold over 65 million copies. How many read the Left Behind series? All right, so a few more there. And then in 2011, there's a guy by the name of Harold Camping, and he made this prediction that Jesus would return and the end would come on May 21st, 2011. Anybody remember that one? And then when it didn't happen on May 21st, and he changed and said, oh, it's in October of 2011. You remember all of this? But the fact that we're still here, folks, means that each one of these predictions were wrong. But here's what I don't want you to lose and lose sight of, because it is true, Jesus will return one day. It is an absolute of Scripture. It's something that's 
and better than all of Scripture. As a matter of fact, there are 2,500 different prophecies that talk about Jesus' second coming and the end of times. And let me put that in perspective. Because there are 300 prophecies in the Bible that talks about Jesus' first coming. And every single one of those 300 prophecies were completely fulfilled. And so when you look at Scripture, and when you look at all of the prophecies that have been fulfilled, that should compel us to give even more attention to these 2,500 different prophecies about Jesus' second coming and about the end at times. And here's the interesting thing about all of this. And that is, many of these 2,500 different prophecies are happening right now in our generation. As a matter of fact, there are more prophecies being fulfilled in your generation than in any other generation prior to this. Isn't that astounding? Of all the prophecies that are in the Bible, you are the generation where more prophecies are being fulfilled than any other generation prior before you. And so... Things that were prophesied 2,600 years ago are being fulfilled right now. But here's the thing. As exciting or interesting as this question is about when Jesus is going to return, I think there's an even more profound question that has to be answered first. And it's this question that needs to be answered if we're ever going to fully understand our purpose and the meaning to our life. And this question is not about when Jesus is going to return. This question is actually about why did Jesus leave in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? Think about that question. Why did Jesus leave even in the first place? Well, what I want to do here this morning is that I want you to try to put yourself in the disciples' sandals just a little bit. I want you to try to imagine this from their perspective, because when we read Scripture, what we tend to do is that we look at it from a historical point of view and what's already happened without really engaging in what was going on there in that moment. Because remember, these disciples, they didn't know the end of the story. They were experiencing it right then and there. So I want you to try to put yourself in their sandals just a little bit here today. And when you think about the disciples, you need to understand that they were a part of the once great nation of Israel. But the previous 1,000 years, they had been under this oppression of empire after empire after empire. And so the prophets foretold that there would be, at some point, a savior, a messiah, who would come to deliver them from this oppression and would, would actually revitalize Israel. And so there's these prophecies that are all about this. And, and so people, they cried out and they prayed for this for century after century after century after century. For almost a thousand years, they had been under this oppression, crying and longing for the Savior, crying and longing, calling out for this Messiah to come and deliver them from oppression. I, I think about this. And I think we cry, we cry out to God and we hope for God to intervene. And after 24 hours go by, nothing changes. We just give up. But they were doing this for centuries. They were longing and crying out for God to intervene into their lives, into their situation. And they were doing that for almost 1,000 years. But then, just about 30 years after this miraculous event in the stable in Bethlehem, Jesus bursts on the scene, he publicly declares that he's the fulfillment of all of these messianic prophecies. 
that he is the Christ who the Jewish people had longed for and been praying for, that he is the king who would restore Israel. And he makes these announcements. And you would think, after all these centuries, after all these years, that there would have been this huge celebration, that the Jewish people would have been excited. They would put on tinker tape parade, and there would be festives and festivals that would happen day and day and weeks and going to months because it's finally here. The thing they hoped for, the thing they had prayed for was finally right there. They were the generation. But instead, in Luke 4, verse 29, it says, They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Think about this. The very thing that they had hoped for, longed for, been praying for, the Jewish people completely rejected. They rejected Jesus as that Messiah, the one that they had hoped for. I can only imagine that from even Jesus' perspective. It's like, what in the world? You've been praying for this. You've been longing for us, and now you're the generation that is happening. It's happening right before your eyes. You're experiencing the fulfillment of all these prayers that have gone before you. But instead, they completely rejected him as Messiah. And so for Jesus, he, he made this kind of way of showing them to demonstrate indisputably that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior. And so he began to perform these torrent of miracles. We began to heal the sick and the lame and the blind and where he fed the thousands and casted out demons and walked on the water and turned water into wine and even raised the dead back to life. And so for three years, this is what he was doing. For three years, he was canvassing the countryside of Israel, preaching and teaching and healing. And even though the religious leaders opposed him and even probably hated him and were threatened by him, the throngs of Jerusalem and the outlining countryside towns, they were moved by these events. And all of a sudden, thousands upon thousands of people were following him and listening to him and seeking to him, seeking after him. And from these followers, Jesus chose 12 men to be a part of his inner circle, to be a part, to see all that was going on, for, them, for him to teach them specifically to go beyond the crowds and the masses, for them to be able to ask questions and kind of see behind the veil of what was going on behind the scenes. And so think about it, again, from these disciples' perspectives. Because these men had been chosen to be these disciples of this hoped-for Messiah. Of all the people, they were chosen to be, be drawn close to him. They were chosen to follow him. They got the inside scoop of everything. And so they had a ringside seat to the most amazing events that this world has ever seen. And so they imagined that Jesus would come to power. They imagined that Jesus would overthrow Rome and that, that Israel would be freed from her captivity. They imagined that Jesus would make Israel great again. So much so that they believed this, that they were arguing over who was going to have the highest rank in this new kingdom that Jesus was going to establish. Mark 10, verse 35 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want you 
We want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and one the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? And are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I'm to be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. And Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. Now, notice what's going on. Because I don't you just hear it from the perspective of you knowing the rest of the story. Think of them, what they're going through. Think of them in this moment. That there are all this excitement, all this buildup that's happening here, and they can see it. They can see Jesus rising in influence in the, in the nation. They can see how he's interacting even with Romans as well as the religious leaders. And so they know it's going to happen. He's going to overthrow this, and Israel's going to be made great again. And so they're starting to position themselves. Who's going to be the best in this next kingdom? Who's going to have that right and left-hand side behind the king of Israel? They can see it happen. But just when the disciples thought that Jesus was going to liberate the Jews from Rome, the unthinkable happened. Because one of the 12 disciples betrayed Jesus, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, and he was arrested and uh, just outside in the Garden of Gethsemane, outside uh, the city walls of Jerusalem, where he'd gone to pray. And so in confusion and fear, these disciples, they immediately scattered. And just in a matter of hours, to their horror, Jesus was brutally beaten and sentenced to death and then nailed on a cross. And there he died and was then laid in a cold tomb. Think about from their perspective, what was going on, I think it's so impossible to imagine the depths of their despair. Because their hopes and all of their dreams, their longs, and everything that they thought was possible, all of a sudden came, came crushing down. Their teacher, this friend that they had been around for these three years, all of a sudden was dead. This longed-for Messiah had been snuffed out just like the wick on a candle. So everything that they'd hoped for. Everything they believed in, everything that they could see happening, everything that they'd been praying for was gone forever. And so they just slinked away in grief, afraid for their own life, so much so that even some of them denied ever even knowing him. The bad guys had won. It was over. The story was ending. This, is, this was it. And three long days went by. But then one last outrageous and totally unexplained plot twist happened that none of them were prepared for because inside that dark, deep, cold stone tomb, new life began to burst forth. And Jesus rose from the dead on that very first Easter morning. Luke 24, verse 1 said, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. 
Now think about this, because there is no more dramatic story in the entire world. There's nothing, there's nothing like this. So think of the awe, and then think of the joy that the disciples must have been feeling here. It would, I think it would be hard to even exaggerate the emotions that, that was going on, because nothing like this had ever happened before. Every hope that they had 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 been shattered. Now all of a sudden, it was suddenly alive. Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He was indeed the Savior. He was indeed God coming to earth. That everything he had said, even though they wanted to believe, but yet in the back of their head they were really doubting, all of a sudden it was proved to be true. He rose from the dead. And that changed everything for them. Look at this in Acts chapter 1. Verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and gave them this and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he's eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, Again, the disciples didn't know exactly what was going on. Like, we read this and we know what was going to happen after the fact. But they didn't. Because all they could hear was, Jesus had resurrected. And now something's going to happen. There's going to be something new, something different, something awesome, something exciting here. And so the sense of their anticipation and the excitement was building up to this fever pitch because Jesus was back and the revolution was back on. That's how they were thinking. That's what was going on inside of them. But then it happened. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus took the disciples to that familiar place on the Mount of Olives. And, and finally, the question that I think every one of the followers were thinking in their own heads. Finally, someone was brave enough to ask the question. And says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, again, think of it from their perspective. They're just seeing, they've just seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. They've seen the impossible happen. And now they're asking this question, okay, when's it going to happen? When are you going to overthrow the Romans? When are we going to have the seat of power established and we're going to do it? And they, so they ask, is it going to happen now? He said, well, I can't really tell you when it's actually going to happen, but power is going to come on you. They say, power, oh, fantastic. And then he goes, starts talking about power in Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem, but Judea. Oh, not just Judea, but Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This is bigger than they even thought imaginable. And so the excitement was happening. The anticipation was going on inside of them. But then the most unthinkable thing happened. Verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, them, hid him from their sight. Think about that. This anticipation, this excitement is all building up here. And he's talking about this kingdom. He's talking about power coming on them. And then all of a sudden, he starts rising up, and then he disappears in a glass. He's gone. Jesus left them. He left them alone. What in the world is going on here? I mean, seriously, is this how it's going to be? After all these dramatic events have taken place, thousands of years of prophecies have been fulfilled. God in incarnation flesh 
actually took on human form. The public ministry and the profound teaching of Jesus, all that they saw and experienced, the astonishing signs and wonders and miracles, and then the brutal death of Jesus, but then the unexpected resurrection, and this, this is how it's going to end? After all these incredible events have taken place, all the things that they've seen and heard, that's it? That's the end of the story? This is how it's going to be? I don't know about you, but if I was writing the story, I would have ended it differently. You know what I'm saying? I mean, all this is building up to such an incredible, an incredible ending here, and then he just disappears. He leads, leaves them. If it was me, it was me writing this thing, I think I would have expected the resurrection would now bring history to a conclusion. I mean, everything had basically been done. The atonement had taken care of. Our sins had been paid for. We now could have a right relationship with God. We could know God. We could hear God. Jesus dealt with all that stuff. As a matter of fact, Jesus, he's the one who said it's finished. He said it's finished. So why not just go directly to Matthew 25's judgment, gather all the nations, separate the sheep from the goats, do all those types of things, get the judgment behind us so that Jesus can then set up his eternal kingdom forever and ever. Amen. End of story. That's how I would have ended the story. It just felt everything was building up to this. And then he just, he leaves. It doesn't make sense to me. Why not just tie up all, all these loose ends in a nice, neat, neat bow? But oh no, Jesus had to leave. He chose to leave. Again, try to put yourself into these followers, these disciples of Jesus' position at that moment. Try to imagine their confusion. This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't fit to what they imagined that would take place. And so look at how Acts 1 describes it, verse 10. It says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. Same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now look at what's going on. That Jesus is talking about this, this kingdom thing and power coming. And then all of a sudden he just starts rising up and he disappears into the heavens. I mean, can you imagine the astonishment? I mean, can you imagine how bewildered and confused they were in that moment? I mean, this can't be happening. What's going on here? Now what in the world are we going to do? I have this kind of image of them staring up blankly into the sky with their mouth open and just stuck there. And I think if the angels wouldn't appear, they would have just, they would still be there. They would just still be there waiting. I mean, he's, he's coming back, right? Come on, there's, there's something else that's going on into this story. He's, and so if these angels wouldn't appear to them and said, okay, here's, here's the thing, guys. I think they would all be stuck up there, stuck looking up into the sky. And I think 2,000 years later, I think so many of us are still perplexed just like that. So many of us are still confused and we're staring blankly out into the sky, wondering what in the world is going on. I don't know what to do. Where does my life fit into all of this. And so I want you to think about three questions. Number one, why did Jesus leave? Number two, when will he come back? And number three, why were we left behind? Why did Jesus leave? When will he come back? And why were we left behind? Now, I want to suggest to you that not only does the very mission and purpose of the church depend upon the answers to these questions. 
but your very purpose and the meaning of your life depends upon the answers to these questions as well. Because if we don't understand why Jesus left, then we'll never fully understand the significance of our lives today. And you won't understand what's going on in your life and even what God is doing in your life. And so here's the answer. You ready for the answer, everybody? You ready for the answer? Yes, sir. Jesus left because there was something critical that he intended for his disciples to do. There was some unfinished business for his church to take care of. Look at this in Matthew 24, verse 3. It says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now notice this. Jesus was very specific of what it was to come and very specific about what he wanted done. And Jesus said that he would return when all of this business was completed. And so what does Jesus' sudden disappearance 2,000 years ago have to do with us in the 21st century? What does it have to do with us? In other words, how should this affect the way that we live our lives and our own understanding of our purpose and the meaning of our lives? Well, the answer to all of this all comes and lies in our worldview. Your worldview makes the difference because as Christians, we need to be able to see this world differently than everybody else sees this world. Did you hear me? You need to be able to see this world differently than everybody else sees this world. The Brazilian theologian, Fry Beto, he made this observation. He said, the head thinks where the feet stand. I'll let that kind of sink in a little bit. The head thinks where the feet stand. Now, as Americans, think about it this way. As Americans, think how different your worldview would be if you had been born, not in America, but in Afghanistan, or in China, or in Gaza, or the West Bank, or in Russia, or North Korea, or Ethiopia. Think of how your worldview would be different because of where you grew up. Different cultures, different economies, different governments, different religious views, different family situations, different languages, different view, different realities. No wonder there's so much conflict in our world today. But not only that, even here within the U.S., if you had been born and raised in Beverly Hills, your worldview would be so much different than if you were born and raised in rural Mississippi, Right? But not only does geography affect our worldview, but your race. 
your economic situation, your gender, your health, your family situation, all of these affect our worldview. And so Fry Beto's observation, I think, is so true. Stand in another person's shoes and your head will think differently. It's such a profound thing that I don't think we really realize the implication of this. But your worldview affects everything about your life. But as true as this is and how we are to interact with humans, with, uh, with other humans here on planet Earth, I think the exact same thing is true with our interaction with God. Because the very meaning and purpose of our lives ultimately depends upon understanding the big story that the author of this universe is writing. And I mean what I mean by this is that if we're characters in this story that he's writing and you're created, you're created specifically to play a role in this story, then ultimately the meaning of your life is only discovered where your story intersects with his story. That's where the meaning of your life comes from. Because, I mean, just think about how authors do it in writing books. Authors don't create characters without roles. Authors don't create characters with no purpose, which means you have a purpose to play and a role to play in God's story. You do. Every single one of us here, you have a purpose and you have a role to play in God's big story. So think about this. God chose not to complete the story and not to tie up all the loose ends with Jesus' death and resurrection. The story didn't end there. The book didn't close at this point. Even though Jesus' work of atonement was complete and even though he dealt with the forces of evil with, a, with, a, with a, a fatal blow, the story didn't end there. As a matter of fact, it was the triumph of Jesus' death and resurrection that opened a new chapter. A new chapter was opened in that moment and this new chapter begins with Jesus' choice to leave those who were following but right before he left them he gave them a mission in this world and he gave them an assignment that he wanted them to fulfill in other words there were tasks that he gave his followers to do that they, he wanted them to finish and so here's the thing they could accept this mission with all of its consequences and its benefits or they could just simply walk away and return back to what things were before Jesus came to as fishermen and laborers and, and tax collectors. It was their choice. Jesus gave them a choice. But when you think of those original disciples, every single one of them gave a resounding and an overwhelming yes to this mission. In Acts chapter 1, the story continues. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. Sabbath day walked from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, Mary, and the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, and dropped down to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, suddenly a a sound of it like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in, in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. 
utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And from that day on, as we read through the rest of the book of Acts, the disciples began to proclaim this gospel with revolutionary fervor from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to really the ends of the known world at that point. And it turned the world upside down. These disciples, these followers of Jesus were driven. They were compelled. Nothing, nothing was more important than this to them. Their worldview had completely changed as a result of witnessing Jesus' death and his resurrection. Their worldview was completely turned upside down by Jesus' teaching about who God was and what God was doing, and they were completely turned upside down, their worldview, by this urgent mission to do what Jesus asked them to do to accomplish these tasks. Because now this gospel... This Jesus who actually was the Messiah, who actually was Savior, now for them it had implications that they now understood. They got it. And so as a result, none of them went back to their old way of living before Jesus called them. I mean, how could they? Everything had changed for them, and they were even willing to give their lives for it. And most of them did. And so what about us today? Because we fast forward 20 centuries later, and when you think about it, 20 centuries later, nothing has changed. Nothing's changed because the vital mission that Jesus gave his followers is still in force. Every teaching and every instruction that Jesus gave is still in effect. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be able to embrace his view of the world. You should want to embrace his view of this world. We should want to see this world as he sees it. We should want to love this world as he loves it. We should want to live in this world as he's asked us to live in this world. We should want to weep over the things that he weeps over, and we should want to treasure the things that he treasures. See, folks, your purpose your purpose is connected to your role that you're to play in God's big story. That's where your purpose comes in. That's what your story intersects with God's story. And as I was thinking about this, this this last week, I knew my kids were coming back from fall break. I have two of my kids in college at, up in Tulsa, Oklahoma at Oral Roberts University. And I was thinking about the vision that God gave Oral in building a university. And the vision that... God gave him was with this commission, which is this, raise up your students to hear my voice, to go where my light is dim, where my voice is heard small, and my healing power is not known, even to the uttermost bounds of the earth. Their work will exceed yours, and in this I am well pleased. I think this is so profoundly defines what we're talking about here this afternoon. And the slogan that ORU uses is this. Go into every man's world. Go into every man's world. Go into the world of medicine. Go into the world of education. Go into the world of science. 
Go into the world of engineering. Go into the world of politics. Go into the world of sports and entertainment. Go into the world of services. Go into the world of business. Go into every man's world and be God's light. Bring God's light with you. Bring God's voice. Bring God's healing power into those worlds. You go and do that. Listen, folks, that's what our purpose is. That's what your purpose is. And none of us are outside of that. Yes, you need to decide which world you're going to go in. Are you going to go into the business world? Are you going to go into the engineering world? Are you going to go into the sciences world? Are you going to go into the financial world? You need to make that decision. That's what your relationship with God is all about. But no matter what world that is, you're to go bringing his light. You're to go bringing his power, bringing his voice, and bringing his healing into those situations. If you would, I want to ask you just to, Close your eyes here, if you would, please, because we're going to end this time here in a little bit differently. We're going to end in worship, because I want you to be able to respond to this. It's one thing to talk about this. It's a whole other thing for you to be able to respond to this. And as I was praying for you and for this service today, I felt like that there was something going on in, in so many people's lives, and, and that is this, that, that your life has become so myopic, and as a result, you feel disillusioned even with your life and with this world. You feel disillusioned by what you see and by what you hear, and, and as a result, you just you feel tired. You feel tired, and you feel like even, even giving up at times, and you wonder what your purpose is. You wonder what that vision is. And maybe you knew it at one point, but, but now for you, it's like you, you missed it. And I think the analogy is very much a sports analogy. Because in sports, so often, it's in that fourth quarter do we find out the conditioning of the athletes. It's in that last mile, that marathon, that you find out what's really in that runner. And maybe for you, you just feel like it, you're depleted. It's just, it's a, the air has gone out of you, and you don't have the strength, you don't have the energy, you don't have that get up and go anymore. And, and you do, you just feel like, you feel like you're, you're giving up. You feel purposeless. And I felt like as I was praying for you and for this service today, that God wanted to give you a second wind talk about it in sports terms that just when it looks like the athlete has nothing left in them just as that, as that runner it looks like he or she is falling behind then all of a sudden the kick starts coming in and this new energy and this new life and this new vitality and this new sense of purpose begins to take over and I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted to breathe in you the second wind where you see tomorrow differently when you go to work or when you're at home and whatever it is that you're doing that you see it with different eyes you see it from a different perspective you see it with a, a different awareness of what's happening that you see this big story that you are being sent from the author of this universe you are being sent into that world to bring his light and to bring his voice and to bring his healing and power it's not just about work it's not just about a job it's not about making money 
but you're actually being sent. And you have a role to play. And so, Father, I pray for every one of us in this room that, Holy Spirit, you would begin to breathe your life into us. That you begin to breathe purpose. That you begin to breathe your miracle-working power inside of our spirits again. And for those who feel worn out, for those who feel purposeless, for those who just feel like they're going through the motions and they don't even know what they're doing, but they got to get up and go to work tomorrow, that God, that you would come in, even in this moment, that Holy Spirit, you would come in and begin to breathe life and purpose and significance that all across this room there would be a second wind that would begin to infuse life again. There would be this kick that begin to take place in each one of these men and women and young people that are in this room. And so, Father, would you just come here in this moment and begin to stir inside of us. If everyone of you just stand to your feet, if you would, please. And let's just in this moment, let's just begin to worship God and ask for his presence to come here in this moment.